I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today are two of my favorite activists, Thomas Goki and Astra Taylor. We started this little campaign with 15 people and overnight proved our theory that people banding together and refusing to pay their debts provoked very interesting and promising reactions. Tom and Astra are here to show us how they harnessed the collective burden of debt and transformed it into collective power. Last night, I decided to Stop bemoaning the current state of the digital economy. I kind of flipped my whole perspective on it in, in a moment and went from feeling really sad about the, the virtual rape of land and people and labor and society and culture by these digital behemoths and realized, I think... The freaks set a trap. I think whether or not we planned it, I think we may have actually uh, sown the seeds for the collapse of corporate capitalism. I mean, think think back to the early Internet days. You know, the, the Internet was not some business idea, remember? The, the Internet, I mean, in addition to being a... Uh, a well, a, a pleasant side effect of, uh, of the Defense Department's need to create a sustainable uh, n- decentralized network, the Internet really was popularized by hippies. 
You know, it was the kids in San Francisco, the acid head friends of mine from college who went out to the West Coast to go work for Intel and and uh, Apple and all the other early Silicon Valley companies. These were psychedelics heads. These were the weirdest, freakiest people I knew. And the reason why they were hired to build the Internet, to build these interfaces, was because they were the only people really who were used to who were used to seeing hallucinations, you know, who were used to living in a world where the things they imagined actually came to pass. You know, it was children, and they were pretty good hackers, and LSD people, psychedelics people. And I would go out to the West Coast and see these people who, you know, worked at Intel or Sun during the day, you know, writing programs for nonlinear fractal equations. And at night, they'd be scraping the peyote buds off cactuses and tripping out on DMT and meeting aliens. So these were people who were, I mean, and I was weird, but these, I was just theater weird. These were people who were two or three or four notches further into weird than I was. And it was these people that built the net. They, they built it. They weren't really thinking about business. They were thinking about, you know, sharing and networking. Everybody did things for free. They wrote programs, even the programs you're all using today. You know, our email programs and, and video programs, these are all just snazzy versions of programs that people wrote for no money, shareware like Eudora and See You See Me and all the other programs that we built in order to communicate on these things. You know, but the people who pushed it, the people who really said, hey, it's okay, the water's fine, come on in, these were people at the very heart of the, the Aquarian conspiracy. You know, this was Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson. It was you know, Howard Rheingold and, and Willis Harmon, who were the people who really brought LSD to Stanford Research Labs. It was Stuart Brand, who was publicist for the Merry Pranksters and, and publicist for the Acid Tests, who you know, went to the first meetings of the, of the you know, the Homebrew Computer Club and, and launched the well, the Whole Earth Electronic Link. You know, and then because something weird and sexy and crazy and cultural and wonderful was going on, money started to pour into this stuff. You know, and what made the Internet sexy, what made it so strange and cool was that people were working on it for free. People just did it because it was fun. They were connecting in strange ways, having conversations about things that they couldn't have by the light of day. It was a real alternative to the kind of yuppie culture that was building, you know, in the mainstream society. Most people coming out of college were not going to California to uh, make computers. They were just going to work for Payne Weber to become uh, uh, stockbrokers. You know, and we were building an infrastructure for a kind of a, of a video game future that ended up attracting business. Now, I got really bummed out when business started to come online. I couldn't even believe when people told me, oh, there's this new company, Amazon, that's going to sell people books on the internet. I thought it was a joke. I didn't think it could possibly last. I thought these were you know, this is my, well, the one thing I was really, truly, deeply wrong about was I thought these would all fail because the Internet was built as a play space, as a, as a no-business zone. You actually had to sign an agreement to get online saying you promised not to do any commercial activity, that you were going to use it just for research because it was as if we understood this was a pure new realm for human engagement. But no, but business came on, tons of it. You know, they, they hooked up banking to this thing and corporatism to this thing. Everything got hooked up to the Internet, stuff that really 
shouldn't be here. It's not that safe a system. This is not a secure system. You shouldn't be doing your banking on it. But that's fine. Come on. So Chase and everybody, they're all on the Internet. Everybody's doing business and transacting, and we get encryption. And, and they start growing their business. The capital starts pouring in until we get to today. You know, the, the Amazon, Uber, Apple, uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, these, these tremendous, these billions and billions of dollars that have gone online. And on the one hand, I look at it and say, oh, my God, look what they've done to our Internet. Look. And they're all in this weird, unstable, strange place with these massive valuations, this craziness that all the wealthy are involved in. And I realize what they've done is they've essentially left behind the real world for us. Right. We've gotten to the place where if it's not happening online, if it's not on Twitter, if it's not on the net somewhere, it isn't real. It hasn't happened. It's not part of the market. Yeah, but the whole market has now gone into that virtual, strange, digital, unreal place and it no longer values the real place that we're in. Now, on the one hand, that's a little dangerous, right, because it can make invisible uh, a lot of destruction that should be in our awareness. But on the other hand, if all the corporations, if all the banking, if all the money goes out there into virtual space, they've left the real world behind. Right. So the counterculture, which used to we used to go online in order to have our alternative culture. Well, now that online space is corporatized, but they no longer see value in the real world. The kissing, the hugging, the looking, the touching, the five people sitting in a room and conspiring and breathing together. That's off the grid. Off the grid, turns out, is the real place, and on the grid is the fake place. So I no longer feel so bad about the fact that our Internet has been colonized by these corporations and banks because they've left the real world for that world. And uh, once they're all on there, once that's the only place they know, well, we could just unplug them all and leave them behind because the real world becomes the playground. The real world becomes that wonderful, playful, hallucinatory, anything-can-happen space that we used to call the Internet. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. You see, what the freaks showed us is that the economy can be hacked. You know, it's out there. It's just code. And it can be hacked and flipped right on its head. You know, and two people who are really embodying this hacker ethos when it comes to debt are Astra Taylor and Thomas Gokey. You know, Astra Taylor, you probably know her best for her movie Zizek about the great philosopher and her recent book, The People's Platform. Uh, Thomas Gokey is a, a accomplished visual artist. He's a professor at Syracuse and a, a pretty significant debt activist. Both Thomas and Astra really seized the momentum of Occupy Wall Street in order to enact a direct action campaign of debt resistance. 
it's a really it's, it's a bizarre but super simple concept where they buy back the debt of other people for pennies on the dollar. You know, they buy debt from the debt collectors and then absolve it. So it's it's crazy, but it actually works. They've also done a, a strike debt and they formed something called the Debt Collective for people to to really organize debt resistance together. Uh, Goki and Taylor are really some of the, the best examples I know personally of how to fight back against the economic injustice of debt in America. Thank you, Astra Taylor and Thomas Goki for uh, joining us here on Team Human today. Let's get right into it. How did Occupy and the conversations around that evolve into a direct action campaign of debt resistance? Uh, Thomas, you, I think we both have our, our stories. For me, student debt was something that was weighing me down personally after graduate school. I had over $40,000 of it. I defaulted, which meant that uh, they actually added almost 20% to the principal as punishment. So, the, you know, I couldn't pay. And then one day they, they called up and said, ha-ha, you now owe even more. So that sort of punitive reaction to the fact that I was struggling uh, made quite an impression on me. And when I got to Occupy, you know, I was I was there the first day. And as it grew, I noticed that something was really connecting people. And it was the issue of debt. The people were writing down how much they they owed, or as they phrased it at the moment, how much they were worth to the 1%. And I just saw people with numbers that boggled the mind, you know, people with over $100,000 of student debt. I actually paid off my student loans shortly thereafter. But what I wanted to do was use all the time that I would have had to work to pay off my stupid student loans to instead work to fight the entire system, and not just student debt, not just debt, but actually just inequality, because debt is is a major a part of the whole financial apparatus that we're, we, we need to face down right now. So for me, there was this sense that that was something that was drawing people to the park, not just Zuccotti Park in New York, but the occupations all over the country, and that it was something we could strategically latch onto and build after the 10 cities, the occupations were gone, you know, that it was something that we could, could continue the spirit of Occupy with in a very innovative and strategic fashion. So that's what we've been doing. We've been, we, I, I think uh, the group Thomas and I are part of, you know, for us, the energy of Occupy hasn't, it hasn't ceased. If anything, we're more intensely engaged in it than we were uh, in September, 2011. So Thomas, you started, you were, uh, I mean, I knew you originally as a visual artist and you're an activist, but you know, you've got this piece I don't know when you did it. The total amount of money rendered in exchange for a master's of fine arts degree to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago pulped into four sheets of paper. Now, is that the kind of thing you did before Occupy, after, or sort of all the way along? That was that was before, yeah. So before Occupy, I was obsessed with debt and how how money worked in the education system. And so a lot of my work prior to Occupy was figuring out how we put a price on education and why we put a price on it and where the money goes. For me, the big, almost like a switch flipping in my brain was before Occupy debt controlled my life and I just thought I need to find a really clever, creative way to pay my debt. And within three or four days of being in the camp, it just sort of dawned on me. I, I shouldn't find a clever, creative way to pay my debt we should find a clever, creative way for all of us to stop paying our debt. That debt is the way that Wall Street occupies our lives. It gives us this enormous amount of power so long as we're doing it together. If we do it individually, it's 
essentially committing financial suicide. And, you know, early on in Occupy, there were working groups that were hashing out whether we should have demands, and if so, what, what they should be. And, you know, I would sit in those working groups, but not really participate too much. And I was mainly thinking, what kind of force could we put behind a demand that was this enormously powerful lever if we all grab it and pull it at the same time? Well, there's there's so much there I want to unpack. But before we do, so, so it ended up, I guess, beginning as a hack that you guys came up with, right? Yeah, it began both as a hack and as, well, there was kind of the, in the classic Occupy style, there was also lots of circles and lots of discussions and lots of studies. I mean, that was one thing I loved about Occupy Wall Street was the first day there was a little march, but instead of standing and shouting slogans, we all got into circles and sat down and talked and debated and shared ideas. I know. It's it's amazing. That's that's what inspired me to actually become a university professor was Occupy. I was expecting a protest like what I saw on TV. You know, I got there like day four or something. And by the time I got there, it's just like graduate seminars <laughs> in alternative currency, a peaceful coexistence, and how do we deal with this parliamentary procedure? There was like a constant circle on just teaching people how to do general assembly hand waves, how to do a uh, human microphone, who to read, and the library opened. I was like, oh my God, this is like the utopian graduate school, and it's free. Exactly, you know? <laughs> and I think it was. It was like this radical breeding ground for nerds. So we really continued in that spirit. We had circles, we had these things called debtors assemblies, where people would just come and step forward and because a big obstacle in organizing people around debt is, is their shame, the sense that they made a mistake, they took a bad deal, or they went to the wrong college or something. So uh, just these sorts of encounter sessions to get people thinking, but tons of study about finance. But then Thomas came to came to the group with this tremendous idea, which eventually was called the Rolling Jubilee. And what was the Jubilee idea? Well, it, in a way, it was sort of a, a sidetrack because... Initially, I thought we need to form something like a debtors union. That was that was the big thing that I was trying to get everybody to to work on. But in the process of doing that, I was meeting other people who, you know, there were several groups popping up that were initially about debt. The the Occupy Student Debt Campaign was sort of the one that I fell in with, and because everybody was talking to each other, you know, I learned something that just sounded too good to be true. I didn't believe it at first, but that personal debts get sold on the secondary market at a steep discount. And they're not willing to give debtors that discount, but they're willing to give it to investors. And I knew that that happened with the secondary mortgage market in a kind of loose way. But I didn't know that that was going on with medical bills or with credit card bills or some kinds of student loans. And if it was true, it seemed like it was worth raising some money, buying some debt, and then destroying it, partly to illuminate how debt functions, and partly as a an on-ramp towards this debtors union project. So that's what we did. It ended up being getting way more attention, way more money, way more enthusiasm than we expected uh, in a lot of good ways, and then, but also sort of people people stopped right there. They didn't see how it fit into this larger vision of of debt resistance as a way of sort of emancipating ourselves from the power of Wall Street over our lives, over what we do all day. Right. But for those maybe who didn't catch the what of 
the Rolling Jubilee. It, it's basically there are these uh, banks and bottom feeders and credit people who buy debt, right? Who buy the the loans that have been made to us, our credit card debt, our medical debt, our student debt. They buy it at pennies on the dollar, but still charge us the total amount plus interest plus everything. And the reason they only pay pennies on the dollar is because, you know, some of us are going to either go bankrupt or not pay or it might cost money. But what you guys did was basically you intervened at the level of those credit buyers and bought people's credit for pennies on the dollar and then basically dissolved it. Essentially, it's a hack. It's looking for the soft spot in the system and saying, well, wait a minute. If institutions can buy that debt so cheaply, why can't we buy it that cheaply and just do something different with it? Rather than use that debt to leverage people into bankruptcy and penury, why don't we use that debt to uh, relinquish their obligation to the the creditors? Yeah. I mean, we were the first group to ever buy debt to erase it that I that I know of. And we had to devise a whole legal strategy and a whole apparatus to do that. And and the point is really that debt debt is a tradable asset. I mean, By others, anyway. It's always been a tradable asset for them, but not for us. It's just been debt to us. Exactly. And that there are these sort of merchants of misery buying your buying your pain, you know. (laughs) So in the case, we we began the project by erasing medical debt. You know, so you've got somebody buying an individual's medical bills when they are already struggling and then extorting money for them when they didn't provide a service or anything like that. But for us, the flip side was always Thomas always used a phrase, which I thought was so great, which was challenging the phony morality around debt. The idea that we're challenging the idea that your debts always have to be repaid. These debts, in our view, are illegitimate and shouldn't exist in the first place. Nobody should go into debt because they have cancer. Nobody should go into debt because they want to get an education. Nobody should have to go into the red for the basic necessities of life. And so there's the kind of legal and systemic hack. And then there's also kind of trying to hack the imagination because the the flip side of that, you know, there's the emancipating ourselves from debt that Thomas called attention to the, no, I won't pay, you know, I want to be free of this debt. But then there's, there's the other question, which is, well, then how do we how do we provide these services? You know, what kind of economy would we build instead? You know, we're also trying to get people to see that their debts are connected to a, a larger system of how we subsidize social goods or, or don't subsidize them in the case of the United right. States. Um, it's to get people to really think something, rethink something that's so basic, that m- payment you're making every month, you know, who is profiting from that? Why does it even exist in the first place? And is it legitimate? Right. That, and that goes to the what, what Thomas was talking about before when he was first thinking about this and then asking questions that no one seems to know the system. I mean, when I was first exploring debt and central currency and where this comes from and reading about alternative currencies and the market monies of the late Middle Ages and, and uh, grain money and grain receipts and money without interest, I started to ask bankers and people at Goldman Sachs and financial officers of our nation, you know, people who work as uh, uh, assistants to to the, the Federal Reserve about debt and money and different money systems. And they had no idea. The easiest example I could bring up, it's almost as if, if, if every computer in the world had the Macintosh operating system on it, you wouldn't know that such a thing as an operating system existed. You would just think that's computer. So these folks, and they're educated and in many cases smarter than we are, they nonetheless, they don't challenge the underlying assumptions of the money system that we use. They don't think of it as a money system. They think of it as money. And the only way they can understand having 
transaction or investing in a in an economy is for it to be debt-based central currency that's issued from a central monopoly bank. And once you have money that's based in debt, that's very function is to be paid back to the bank with interest, then everything else becomes debt-based. Our business becomes debt-based. Our trading becomes debt-based. Our education becomes debt-based because that's the only, that's what we have is debt currency, not money. I mean, I agree that there are there are many experts who are trained not to ask why, but kind of just trained to keep things going, right? They just, they want to, to sort of maintain the status quo, but we could have our current currency and still not have people be deeply indebted for, you know, healthcare and, and education and these things, right? I mean, there could be a world where we overhaul our, our money system, but we could also just have, you know, publicly financed social services. And that would go a long way to eliminating some of the misery that Thomas and I and the rest of our collaborators see with our membership. I mean, we see people who are not just financially suffering in terms of, you know, wondering whether they'll ever be able to have a home of their own, whether they'll be able to actually have a chance to get a real education because they were defrauded by a for-profit college. You know, we're we're now engaging with these folks through this debtors union, uh, which is now, it now exists and it's called the Debt Collective, debtcollective.org. You know, and we could do a, a whole lot to make the situation better for millions of people, even with the money system as it is. Right. In other words, the 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 fact that everyone in America is basically one illness, one divorce, one accident, one fire away from bankruptcy is not a function necessarily of central bank issued currency. It's a function of the way that we prioritize our spending as a nation. Mm-hmm. And it's something that really, you know, for me, the challenge here is, you know, looking at the way the economy has shifted after the, the 70s, right? So there was a sort of supposedly golden age, mid 20th century, and trade unionism was high and, you know, minimum wage would allow you to kind of live a, a decent life. And then something, you know, happened starting in the last four decades or three decades where unions were under attack. So people didn't have that power. And I think that that's something we should talk about is is people power. Social services started to be eroded. The economy became more globalized. You know, so what do you do? What do you do to push back against all those forces? And that's why I think this idea of uniting debtors to leverage their, the economic power they have through through debt is, is such a, an important and necessary idea because we've got There are so many people, there are so many Americans, you know, who are not, they're not able to band together with others because there's nothing for them to join. They don't have a stable job, so they can't join a regular labor union, but they sure as hell have debt and that debt will follow them to the grave. And so that's something for them to uh, connect with others over and to exercise some sort of power to change things. What what do they get by banding together other than uh, emotional support? Well, you know, our debt is someone else's profit. And if we band together, we have the ability to cut off that supply of, of profit. And that's there's real power. There's real bargaining power. There's no good reason for Goldman Sachs to exist. We could structure banking in an entirely different way. For me, it's sort of this classic nonviolent tactic. Look at the way in which your daily life, your behaviors are connecting with these systems of exploitation and find creative ways to just stop cooperating with Like them. what? Well, like stop paying your monthly bill. Stop paying your, your credit card bill. But it only works if we get lots and lots of people and people who have 
similar creditors in order to gain some some bargaining power. Over right. Them. I mean, right right now, it feels like, you know, the only people who could do that are people with nothing to lose. You know, if I joined in and stopped paying my credit card bill, bad things will happen to me and my family, right? I mean, on the one hand, yes, you might have a lot to lose if you're someone who, you know, is managing to kind of live a comfortable life. You, you might also have something to gain by banding with others and let's say engaging in collective bargaining to get a better interest rate on the credit card bill you're paying month after month. And, and we're kind of in that level of abstraction right now. But Thomas and I have been you know, with with our collaborators at the Debt Collective, we've been putting these ideas into practice over the last year with a group of, a growing, an ever-growing group of uh, people who attended for-profit college who declared the first ever student debt strike. People have been on, on strike. It started with 15 people who took this stand and basically said, look, our debts are, are fraudulent. Not only were we misled and lied to when we enrolled in these degree programs, we also believe education is a human right, so there's a sort of bigger moral claim. The 15 people grew. It's now hundreds of people. And they immediately got the attention of the authorities. And there have been some very concrete results. Right now, there are sessions happening in Washington that are going to be setting the rules for future students who are in similar boats who have been defrauded, creating some sort of mechanism for them to challenge their debts and to hopefully get debt relief. So, I mean, we started this little campaign with 15 people and overnight basically proved our theory that people banding together and refusing to pay their debts, trying to utilize the leverage that they have, could provoke very interesting and promising reactions. Now, the, but the, the the people going to Corinthian or another mm-hmm. uh, uh, scam university, if we can call it that, they're in a slightly different boat than someone who, you know, gets in $200,000 debt for going to MIT or Harvard. It's a difference of degree <laughs> um, rather than kind. So it's interesting is these scam for-profit colleges and, you know, Harvard, they're all connected back into the same federal student loan system, right? So there's a sort of different brand on the surface and you have different opportunities based on the brand. But the financial aspects are far more similar than people would like to admit. Yeah, I mean, whether you're going to a, a state school or a community college or an Ivy League school, we have a for-profit student debt industry. We have a for-profit Department of Education. There really isn't that much difference, I don't think, between a technical for-profit university, a lot of whom are being reborn as non-profits, the same way that, for example, FIFA is a non-profit, technically. But they're still generating massive, massive amounts of profit for some people who are plugging into the system in some ways, which is why... Douglas, your framework of like program or be programmed has been so useful for me. They're, they're generating a lot of profit for the people who are designing that system. What would it look like if the people who are providing all of that profit through debt could cut off those resources and redesign the system differently? We can educate each other without forcing people into a lifetime of crushing debt. That's entirely possible. How do we get from where we are now to the education system we would like to see? Some massive civil disobedience is going to be necessary. So I don't want to minimize the risk involved. There's always risk with civil disobedience. But I, I think it's less than people are afraid of. And having these initial victories with the Corinthian debt strike 
you can almost see the fear melt away. The, when we talk to people around the country, there's a real eagerness. People want to know, when can I strike my debt? And you know, we might not be at the place right now where you could you know, strike a $5,000 credit card bill, but we could get there quicker than people think. I, you know, there are, we're being pretty smart about how we're starting. At least I feel pretty proud about how smart we've been targeting our initial strikes and the way that we think we can build. Uh, and I think that fear is going to melt away with, with some victories. Yeah, I mean, a part of the thing that's interesting about it is that I guess it constitutes true protest because it's kind of unrecognizable. <laughs> if you know what I mean, it's like they're used to they would understand if you, you know, marched in front of Visa or Goldman with picket signs and said, no student debt, no student debt and made an appointment to get arrested and whatever. OK, it's an issue, blah, blah, blah. You know, and a couple of Congress people will take it up and then it goes away. But you're doing a it's a new mutation. It's a new protest theme. And it's very unrecognizability, you know, makes it very hard for the traditional kind of cultural immune system to target it and kill it. Do you know what I mean? It's unique. Yeah, it's unique. It's as unique as the Rolling Jubilee. I mean, the Rolling Jubilee was this really impressive hack of the secondary debt market. And we've erased almost $35 million of people's healthcare and tuition debt to date. And actually, there'll be more exciting news from the Rolling Jubilee later this year. It's not over yet, even though we, we stopped soliciting donations quite a while ago. But the Rolling Jubilee, you know, inspired people and fired up their imaginations. And I, But I think the debt strike as a kind of new form of, of not just civil disobedience, but economic disobedience is, is kind of just as interesting. And for me, looking at history, you need that economic power. I mean, I think you're exactly right. We could go protest and block an, block an intersection and, and uh, shout some slogans, like I was saying. And, and sometimes those things are good and necessary, and sometimes they're all you can do. But, you know, we want the fear of, of the debtors to melt away, but we kind of do want certain people to be afraid. And they're afraid when they feel that you might threaten them in their in their wallet, right? When people, when workers say, I'm going to withhold my labor, you know, and shut down the factory and shut down your profits until you negotiate, until you improve these conditions or give me the weekend or whatever it is. I mean, I think debtors are in a, a similar situation where they need to make that kind of strategic threat. And it has to be backed up by all sorts of research and legal tactics so that it's not just a sort of financial suicide for folks. And that's really what we're trying to do with the debt collective right. is, is to be really smart, but also to be brazen. Yeah, the beauty of a debt strike, it's like, what, are they going to get a scab then to come in <laughs> to pay your debt? <laughs> you know, I think the 1% should be those scabs. You know, they're, right. they're one of the, the, the named debt collective for this this new organization, one of the fun aspects of it is that on one level, we want to be debt collectors. There are people who owe debts who are not paying those debts. The owner of Corinthian College, the, the, the primary shareholder, was Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo owes a debt. Somebody has to pay this off. It shouldn't be the taxpayers. It shouldn't be the students. It should be Wells Fargo. If we band together, we can collect it. We need something like the people's repo man. Some debts should be repaid. And those are the people who have been walking away from their debts, right? They're the people who, are, who you know, use corporate bankruptcy to slither away from their responsibilities or who demand massive federal bailouts, right? So right. the double standard is there, too. 
so what's what's coming up and what what can people do so somebody's listening to this and they're like yeah whether they have debt or not they realize the drag that debt is putting on on team human um for <laughs> for lack of a better generalization i mean what what do we do how do we join what's coming up one of the early iterations of our, our group sort of after the encampment and before the rolling jubilee, I think we we collectively wrote something called the Debt Resisters Operations Manual, which is still available at strikedebt.org and it was actually published as a book. You like your paper. So I think reading that is a wonderful place to start. It's sort of half survival guide, half systemic analysis and lays out a lot of our thinking on these issues. And also, you know, you can't you can't devalue that, that thing that we were inspired by in Occupy, which was people getting together and talking and organizing debtor circles and just beginning that process of getting over the shame and getting over the stigma and sharing stories and devising local approaches. But we will definitely have things for people to be involved in. And we are, we are going to expand beyond the focus on Corinthian, on the for-profit college sector to make the connections to so-called traditional college and university students in the months ahead. So people should sign up so that they can be part of that if they want to when the time comes. But yes, just keep keep watching this space. And I should say, if you if you did attend Corinthian College, whether that's Everest College, Wyotech, or Heald, or if you attended ITT, AI, or the University of Phoenix, DeVry, you can go to our website and fill out what's called a defense to repayment form, which is one of these, I guess you could call it a hack, it's uh, a little used process to, within the law to get this fraudulent debt discharged under certain conditions. And until we created a streamlined process to file a claim, we're only aware of five people who had ever filed claims previously. There's now over 7,500 people who have filed a claim, and the Department of Education doesn't know what to deal with it. It's the law. It is the law that these fraudulent debts should be discharged. And what we're battling over in the, in the meantime is exactly how, that, uh, how following the law will be implemented. And of course, there are extreme forces at work that says, well, the law doesn't apply when it means poor people don't have to pay their debt. It's a wrestling match, but I think uh, in some ways we've already won. In some ways, the struggle continues. And it'll probably be another year or so before we get a final result to this. Yeah, one thing you you mentioned that I want to, I guess, want to go back to and maybe close with here is the shame and the stigma that's associated with debt, and how, in many ways, debt and the mythology around debt has been constructed, you know, really to elicit those human emotions from us. You know, the, this notion of shame and the stigma around debt is part of what disempowers us. It's part of what uh, what keeps us from forming any kind of solidarity around the mutually crippling effect of debt. You know, it's so it's so hard because we think of it as something that we personally did wrong or something that we want to hide from our neighbors rather than band around. You know, what are you finding is the sort of the easiest way to help people reframe debt from being some personal shame to being a collective foe? 
for me, it was that first day to Occupy, right? It was That was the first time that I had come out of the shadows as a student debtor. And it, instead, it was this thing that just kind of would, would come to me in the middle of the night, like $40,000, you know, with interest. What is it? It was going to be, what, a hundred grand or something by the time I had finished. So we have to go from the individual to the collective. We have to start telling ourselves and each other that these debts are not our fault, that there's a bigger debt that's not being paid. And that's the debt of a decent society to provide healthcare and education and roofs over our head, you know, to provide in, in, this, in this world of abundance. Why are we stuck in this scarcity mindset and this sort of scarcity economics. I really think it's it's talking to each other because our slogan has always been, you are not alone, A-L-O-A-N. And it's really, it's really true. And for me, you know, my life changed meeting, meeting Thomas and meeting the rest of our collaborators. And, you know, we're a very small group. There's not even 10 of us. And we've managed to do, I think, quite an impressive amount in just a couple of years. And so I hope that that's inspiration to people to kind of think creatively, to realize that whatever system we have, we can change it, that humans did write it and we can rewrite it. Exactly. I don't know how to say it better than you just did. So thank you, Esther Taylor and Thomas Gokey, for being clearly for being on Team Human and, uh, you know, leading the charge against the dehumanizing systems that uh, mean to, uh, well, make the world a, a place more for systems than for people. Thank well, you, thank you for, for inviting us to, to be a part of this conversation. I feel more human as a result. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Today's show was made possible thanks in part to an underwriting donation provided by Zago, strategic design studio committed to positive social change. Our friends at Zago also designed our logo and helped me with the visual design and website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. I'm Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.